This is Hermine Hartman with Cozy Conversations, and today we are going to talk to Bishop Tavis Grant. Bishop Grant has recently been appointed to the acting uh, national director of Rainbow Push. That's the organization founded by Reverend Jesse Jackson. And uh, we want to chat about civil rights and current events and so forth. Bishop Grant, thank you and welcome. Well, it's exciting and it is invigorating to be a part of the Cozy Conversation. Oh, very good. So let's talk about civil rights movement. Let's talk about the progression. You've been involved with the civil rights movement since you were 17 years old. You and I have something in common. Uh, Me too, right? Me too. Me too. So uh, (laughs) we want to talk about what you have seen over the years. What have you seen transform, transpire, and what's impressed you? Well, I've seen the uh, evolution of uh, the most iconic figure of my lifetime, Reverend Jesse Lewis Jackson. You know, when you talk about starting at 17, uh, it was very impressionable as a teenager uh, coming into the world and being exposed to uh, Reverend Jackson as he was uh, ascending to these uh, heights of leadership that we had never seen. We'd never we'd never seen after the assassination of Dr. King. Uh, some really thought that that was perhaps the pinnacle and we would not see the Uh, the evolution of black leadership uh, go beyond that. Uh, And we did uh, from uh, his organizational skills, uh, Operation Breadbasket to Operation Push, Rainbow Push Coalition, uh, running for uh, at a time that people thought was unimaginable, 84 and 88, uh, this when he ran for president, ran for, ran for president of the United States, candidate. Democratic candidate, mm-hmm. African American that was put progressive politics on the table. The word progressive that is now so acceptable today was inflammatory then. Uh, and so as many of us grew uh, along with him, um, here we are today watching him at this stage of life. Uh, where he's all he's all but outlived many of his peers uh, to a great extent, uh, and he's taken uh, seemingly this marathon all the way to the finish line. So, how does uh, I you you hear on the street? You hear it with the millennial population. You hear that civil rights movement is dead, and Black Lives Matter. And I often say to them, if if it wasn't no civil rights matter. Black lives didn't matter and wouldn't matter, and you all need to go do some research. But here's the question. How does the civil rights movement, as we know it, differ from Black Lives Matter? Well, we were more than, we were more than a moment that sparked a movement. We, civil rights is a continuum. It's a perpetual of an ever-evolving movement. You know, when you look and you see what is happening to the owner of the Phoenix Suns and the Mercury WNBA team uh, being fined and being suspended, that's the work of civil rights. For his for words, for his of, language. Right? Just not the racial slurs, but his malfeasance towards women, 
and others in the workplace. That's the work of Reverend Jesse Jackson, John Lewis, and so many others, that civil rights was about public policy. It was about culture shift. It was about legislation. It was about quality of life. And uh, not that we are juxtaposed, but I think what this generation um, um, sometimes uh, misses the mark uh, is their sense of entitlement. Mm -hmm. There is a tremendous amount of suffering for there to, we're in just the first year of Juneteenth. We're just in the first year of anti-lynching legislation. All residuals, all rewards of the struggle of civil rights. And I think that the movement of Black Lives Matter did a tremendous job at bringing about an awakening in the culture that caused a generation to answer the question, what will become of us? Uh, Because Dr. King didn't just march uh, in the streets. He marched all the way to the nation's capital. And changed the law. And changed the law. Challenged the president. There's there's this interesting story about Dr. King and President Johnson. President Johnson says, Dr. King, uh, Dr. King, don't you know uh, you got to back off uh, all this that you're asking for and voting rights and so on and so forth. And the doctor said, back off of what? He said, well, let me put it to you this way. Don't you know, America, uh, that uh, all washing machines in America are white? He said, yeah, and they have black agitators. <laughs> and his point was, you can't transform uh, America without the necessary means inward, outward, uh, to bring about a change and an upliftment. That's what civil rights is and all the about. And the part of the Johnson story is when Dr. King was asking for the civil rights legislation, and Johnson said he, he didn't think he could get it through, he couldn't do it. And then Johnson said, make me make do, me it. Me make do me, it. Yes. And uh, I understand Andy Young was with uh, Dr. King. Dr. King at that moment got up to leave, and Andy said, where are we going? And he said, we're going to make him do it. Yeah, and, and that was the beginning yeah, of the March on Washington. Yeah, and, and, and it was not about cultural, civil rights has not been about cultural acceptance. At the core, it's about, it's about society transformation. Uh, when you transform from signs that said black and white, transform from having to sit at the back of the bus, you didn't have to accept me. When I went into the World War and now I can sit at the lunch counter, you didn't have to accept me. You didn't have to change your language. You didn't have to change your behavior. You could call me if the, the law, word the and law, it was okay. The law says mm-hmm. I have the right to come in as a consumer. The law says I have the right to ride the bus. The law says, so you don't have to accept me. And I think that's where the, the, the fine line of movement and civil rights we, we never fought to be accepted. We fought for the right to coexist. And we could coexist with any and everybody. Can you imagine? My father was a, was a military man. And they, they, would, they would go overseas and be accepted and be welcomed and, and be integrated into the, uh, the community, whether it was Germany or Australia or France. wherever they were, France, mm-hmm. wherever they were, they were based. Then they come home and get on planes and trains and be called the N-word, and still wear that uniform. It wasn't about being accepted. And I think we've sacrificed a lot of, uh, of, of the civil rights gains 
for the euphoria of being accepted. Uh, Acceptance will not get you a contract. Acceptance will not get you procurement. Acceptance won't get you elected to the White House. Our gains have been through legislation, public policy, and a transformation of culture. And voting. And voting rights Mm -hmm. that afford us to coexist and be and, and, and have what Reverend Jackson talks about, equal protection under the law. Full citizenship. No doubt about it. As an American. No doubt about it. We're talking to Bishop Tavis Grant, who is the acting national director of uh, Rainbow Push. Um, One of the things, and this is a difference, if you will, civil rights movement versus Black Lives Matter. The civil rights movement has been a faith-based organization activity. Talk about, for me, the role of ministry as you see it. We've, we've gone through COVID last two and a half years, and one of the institutions that radically changed during COVID was the church. Church services not held in a building, uh, but transformed into YouTube, transformed into um, uh, uh, Facebook hmm. Live. But the role of the ministry in social rights, civil rights, What's the role? What's the new role of ministry? Well, there's a biblical moral obligation uh, to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to house the homeless, uh, to show compassion and redemption for the incarcerated. Uh, And and I think that I I know that uh, people like Dr. King uh, and others knew the viability of the black church as an institution and not an individual. And I think that is what has happened. We have made, we've allowed the black church in in the past decade or so to become a a place of individuals where it was at its best an institution where teaching took place, an institution where training took place, an institution where community was built and sustained. Uh, and so it has a it has a significant role even today. There is no institution that is as viable and reliable as the black church. It is understaffed. It is underfunded. It is uh, it, it it has uh, somewhat in many instances antiquated resources. But go to any church and you can get fed. And I'm not just talking about the figurative word of God. I'm talking about food. Go to any church and you can get some type of benevolence. Go to any church and you can get some type of access to resource or aid or assistance and or support without without the obligation that you have in the secular, private, and corporate sector. This misnomer of these pastors and preachers that are making all this money and living the high life, not so. Many of them... Uh, many of them are are, are 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 so close to being unemployed because they live week to week, week week to week. So many of them are uninsured, not even a life insurance policy. So many of them have lived with daily uncertainty, or have other jobs, or have other jobs. And so, the black church has a significant role in the sustainability of what we must now invest in. We've heard a lot about. For example, investing in historically black colleges, we are going to have to uh, learn the art of wealth building and wealth creating and restore historically black communities. 
historically black communities like Beverly, like 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 Roseland, like West Garfield Park, where you have the middle class still yet holding on after the pandemic, and at the core of that hub is the institution of the black church. That is not just a place of inspiration, but a place of investment, real estate, and generational wealth. And so I don't think we've seen the best days of the black church. I believe they're just right around the corner. Bishop Arthur Brazier told me something once. There was a um, some catastrophe. I can't remember what it was, but I wanted to give money, give clothes, wanted to be active in it. And I called him to say, because he had developed a fund or something that he was doing for for the purpose. And I said, um, Bishop, what, tell me what to do and where I should do my giving. And he said, always just do the giving through the church because I find and connect to a church, not the Red Cross, not the Goodwill industry, not the Salvation Army, but directly to the church. And I said, well, why do you say that? He said, because the church gives to the people, not to the administration. We have no administration. Our administration and volunteers, come on, this is what we got to do. And he was saying those other organizations, you will be given to the administration of the process, but people may not see what the gift. When you look at the footprint of, of apostolic, there is no way, I promise you without contradiction, when they did the feasibility study, they had to consider the holdings of black churches in that footprint. I know because you know there's no black factory in that footprint. Well, that's the biggest employer in the community. I know and you know that aside from the University of Chicago, collectively the black church holds the largest holdings of real estate in that footprint. And I guarantee when they looked at the profitability of that, the feasibility of putting the Obama library in that area, black churches were were part of that equation. And so in many instances, uh, there is a uh, sometimes reluctant and oftentimes an ignorant view of the black church and its viability. Uh, It is yet my uh, belief and, and, and my desire to see the black church do what the black church has always done, and that is keep the black community alive. So um, we've talked about this offline. What television is doing with the reality shows on the black church, on the black ministry, on the black family of the black church, some of it is absolutely ludicrous. Um What's your thoughts? What's your opinion of some of these reality shows? Now, some of them have come off the air because I think there was there was protest uh, and anger about some of them because the minister was not the minister as we know them in reality, but kind of uh, some kind of mockery that was that was made, which was demeaning. I know I was one of the people just absolutely just incensed about. Uh, what they were doing when they had the black ministers of L.A., the black ministers of Atlanta. And when they came to Chicago, there was an absolute resounding, no, we're not interested in that. No, we will not do that. No, that's not who we are. And no, you all can go back to Hollywood with all of your money and your television and your broadcasting. That is not who we are. It's not what we do. And we're not going through mockery. What's your thoughts on that? 
Our brothers and sisters in in the Jewish community, uh, many of them uh, at sundown, will honor the Sabbath. Our Muslim brothers and sisters will go to prayer, and they will pray uh, in their respective synagogues and temples. There will be no mockery of that. Absolutely. There will be no, no disrespect mm-hmm. uh, given towards that. There will be no theater around that because those communities have made it clear this is who we are. Uh, there is a particular passage of Scripture that says this is a generation that knew not Moses. This is a generation that knew not the bridge and the waters and the sands of time that the black church has gotten us to. And I think significant to the question is realizing the value of redemption today. There is no institution that can deal with one million black men incarcerated like the black church. On that note, we're going to take a break, commercial break. We're having a cozy conversation with Bishop Tavis Grant. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Small businesses are the pillars of our communities, and they deserve our support. The BMO for Black and Latinx Businesses program provides that support by giving you better access to educational resources, partnerships, and funding. BMO has already made an impact by providing financing to more than 1,200 businesses throughout the Midwest. Business owners who are part of the program benefit from a wide range of tools, webinars, and coaching to help you focus on what you do best, and that's growing your business. Meaningful partner connections give you access to professional networks and alternative funding resources to help your business scale. And funding for your business comes with expanded credit criteria and competitive interest rates to help you obtain the working capital that you need to succeed. If you identify as a business or Latinx business owner, BMO Harris is here to help your business thrive and create capacity to grow. Learn more at bmoharris.com slash black and Latinx. When a bank helps you make real financial progress, well, that's the BMO effect. And we're back with Bishop Tavis Grant, and we're having a cozy conversation. Bishop, what's your what's your goals in your in your in your new role, new leadership? What's your goals for Rainbow Push? Well, one, I my goal is to be a part of the process to keep Reverend Jesse Jackson alive, well, and viable. Keep Jesse alive. Keep Jesse alive. I, I know you want to keep Hope alive, but my job is to keep Jesse keep Jesse alive. I Reverend think Jesse, you stole that from me. Yeah, Reverend Jesse. Jackson has uh, a, a tireless spirit. He is relentless in his quest on a daily basis to remain uh, viable, visible, and a voice uh, in that order. And I'm committed to that personally and, and professionally. Uh, one of the things that we've got to do is we've got to now seize the opportunity in this time of transformation for us as an organization uh, to par- prepare generation. So we're going to do a lot of multi-generational, intergenerational uh, training, developing, mentoring, and coaching. Uh, as young people are aspiring to go into politics, uh, there's been no one whose footprint has not shifted the landscape of politics in America like Jesse Jackson. Social justice and the issues related, related to social justice. When you look at Jackson, Mississippi, that's environmental justice. 
Flint, with the Michigan, water, with the, the water, water environmental situation. justice, mm-hmm. immigrants, social justice. And all immigrants don't just come from uh, South and Central America. They come from the diaspora. Did you did you see what they did with the immigrants yesterday? They went to Martha's Vineyard and the vice president and home. the vice president's home. This is a new this is a new degree of human trafficking that cannot be obfuscated by the politics and the optics of people trying to use it for embarrassment and sensationalism. And so we must train and develop and cultivate a new breed and brand of leadership. Secondly, uh, we must venture out into the waters that Reverend Jackson breached over 50 years ago, and that's economic freedom and economic liberation. We've lost 41% of black businesses during the pandemic. Over 400,000 black businesses were lost during the pandemic. And yet what we saw with the appropriate uh, financial backing and investment uh, from the federal government, an alarming 30% of black and brown children were moved off the national poverty line. Another 40% of black families were moved off the national poverty line. So we know money makes a difference. We know income makes a difference. Wealth building and wealth creation makes a difference. And so we're going to be launching a brand new Wall Street project. We're going to be launching right here in Chicago a LaSalle Street project because we must we must be very, very serious about not just our politics, but our economics. And we must be economically liberated in a way that we can have real capital as it relates to self-determination. We've got to be intentional. Yeah, and last but not least, the legacy of Reverend Jackson goes beyond 50th and Drexel here in Chicago. And my my prayers to begin to lay the framework on the foundation of the legacy of Reverend Jesse Jackson in institutionalizing what he has done and what we must be committed to carrying on. Let me ask you a world global question. Um, We've just seen Queen Elizabeth, after 70 years, uh, make her physical transition. And we've seen a new, new leadership. Her son promoted to king uh, after 72 years of posturing for it, waiting for it. She was the youngest queen. He becomes the oldest king. And we see the transition. We see the hierarchy of the um, um, of the royal family. We see titles being given to the children for heredity, uh, royal kingdom purposes, and so forth. But we also see something else. Of late, in the last couple of days, uh, the Africans and Jamaica and Bahamas have come out to challenge, we don't need a kingdom. We don't need a monarchy. We need our independence. And the reason being that the queen um, engaged in colonialism. And so they are saying uh, the queen uh, had slaves. Uh, the, the, the queen supported slavery and cheap labor and so forth. What do you think about that? Do we need, and we don't, we Americans, monarchy is not who we are, it's not what we do. We appreciate, we respect, and so forth. But it's really uh, foreign to us in terms of the king, the queen, and so forth. That's foreign. We we make our celebrities kings and queens. But what do you think of the monarchy 
in a contemporary sense to or not to have for South Africa and for um, uh, Jamaica. Uh, I understand that the Queen was quite fond of Nelson Mandela and the endeavors that he went through. But when he met her, he would not call her Queen. He called her by her name, Elizabeth. Uh, One of the uh, ministers of Jamaica said that, uh, and this is important to note, and I think this is something missing from the Black Lives Matter movement, the younger people, and that is the Queen... When, when the slaves were sold, they were paid, the colonials were paid because they lost their property. Mm-hmm. It was $20 million mm-hmm. they were paid. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. the slaves were paid not one cent. Mm-hmm. Do we still, do you think those countries still need monarchy? They, they, the answer to that question is, is emphatically no, but they cannot be totally free without the economics that sustain their emancipation. Which is tourism. Colonialism is and is and it was and still is an economic system of of transference and commerce. And these countries, fledgling, some of them are, uh, many of the others have uh, established themselves in amazing ways uh, to be self-sustainable uh, the reality uh, and the uh, trauma uh, that colonialism uh, has left on the continent of Africa and many places around the African diaspora West uh, cannot be ignored and cannot be recasted. You know, interestingly enough, Reverend Jackson said the other day, there's a time to mourn uh, and there's a time to criticize. And while we're in this season of mourning, we must recognize that the transformative power of politics uh, for a Nelson Mandela to, to have enough dignity uh, after spending those many, many years in prison for what he believed in, what he's willing to die for, to say, I'm going to recognize you for who and what you are, is a part of this ability to coexist on the global stage with a sense of self, uh, uh, self-determination determination mm-hmm. and the dignity uh, to hold it up, even if you are victims of divestment, and that is what these countries are looking at. And so freedom and freedom, and so we must challenge the World Bank and the IMF uh, to bring about the necessary global reparations that these countries are due uh, for the human capital they've lost, for the natural resources that they've lost and for the infrastructure that's yet to be uh, rebuilt and reinvested in in these countries that have suffered at the hands of colonialism. Uh, I've come to learn an apology without uh, recompense, without repayment, without uh, without reparations is just mere words. And I think in the days and and weeks to come, as we see the transition in Buckingham Palace, we need to know, are you going to put some money on the table? So it's a, it's a reparations moment. Actually. It is indeed a reparations it moment might, because might be very historic. They have they have benefited uh, immensely mm-hmm. uh, from not just the slave trade but the civil wars that existed and in the, the name of upholding colonialism and the sugarcane and the coffee and the cocoa beam and all of that yes. as uh, as it has I mean, been what, sold what, worldwide in this, in this experiment called democracy. What we're learning, for example, 
The reason why China and 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 Russia can't align because they don't see themselves in a, mar- a monarchy. They see themselves as an empire. We see ourselves as a democracy. They see themselves as a monarchy. And we must now take our rightful place in this democracy. In the world. In the world. world in the stage. world. In the world and on the world stage to be true to our call and our nature, which is uh, having the opportunity to change the world. We've always done that, and there's no reason why we shouldn't continue to do so. This is Hermine Hartman with a Cozy Conversation, and today we're talking to Bishop Tapis Grant, and we're talking about civil rights, we're talking about world events, we're talking about the Queen. Uh, we talk, we've having, we're having a cozy conversation on it's global. Real, it's real close. It's real close? <laughs> You, you talk about the studio, how small No, no, I'm talking, talking, about, about, the, I'm talking about the conversation. We're going to be fighting in a minute. <laughs> so where are we? This is, this is our final question to you. Where are we in America politically? I think we're at a crossroads. Mm-hmm. I, I don't mean to be redundant, and I don't mean to be patronizing, but I believe these next four years— are going to change what has happened in the past 12 years and will set us up for at least the next 20 years in terms of our political progress in over 34 states, voter suppression laws, uh, ID voting laws, rolling back early voting. There's something about the fear of black and brown people Voting along with progressive whites. There's it, something. It, there's something about it. Is that it called power? It's called power, mm-hmm. and and I believe that what has recently happened uh, with Supreme Court decisions, state Supreme Court decisions, uh, the uh, visible vocal uh, presence of insurgents, of insurrectionists, of those who want to suppress us economically. Uh, and politically, it has set up a real transformative moment that is similar to Malcolm, Martin, and Kennedy. And we just may have an opportunity to shock the world in terms of leveraging political power that is not predicated upon who has the largest check or the biggest bank account. And I think that's what we're seeing across America today. I think it's across the world. Bishop. It is. A, it is across it's the world. Worldwide. But everything starts at our doorstep, mm-hmm. and everybody. St- everything starts at our door. Bishop Tavis Grant, I want to thank you for coming in today, and joining us in a cozy conversation as we talk about global events. We talk about our experiences. We talk about the ministry. But um, good luck to you. And Let God me come bless back. You. You want to come back? Yeah. I don't know about that. Stay, stay, stay cozy and close. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening. Cozy Conversation, Bishop Tavis Grant, National long, Director of Rainbow Push. A long time coming, but I know.